Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There is nothing more humiliating than crying in a public place. Which is funny, considering an element of my job description as an actress includes crying in front of a lot of people on purpose. For the record, I don't even enjoy it then. Nope, I prefer to cry where every other civilized grown-up does. In the bathroom. And I tried explaining this to my therapist when I let him in on my latest public display of emotional instability. You see, I was at dinner with two friends. I started the evening off with the best Negroni I have ever had. Now, if you don't know what a Negroni is, it's a cocktail. And it requires three ingredients, gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth, all in the same ratio. It is a delicious, boozy cocktail that traditionally tastes the same anywhere you go because of its simplicity. But not this Negroni. No, this one tasted different. As a Negroni connoisseur, I can tell you this was the best fucking Negroni I have ever had. This was well into our meal, and I was still incredibly wrapped up in my Negroni haze that I tracked down the bartender to join us tableside and explain to us why this Negroni was so good. I didn't have to pry very hard for a secret recipe. He just said, well, I make my own sweet vermouth. And he told us about how he was drying herbs and flowers from this backyard garden of the restaurant he worked at. How he fell in love with the unique nuances that the vermouth would take based off of the weather patterns of the previous year. Whether it was drier or more sweet, he liked paying attention to the personality of the plants and the dirt how they would surprise him, how they would evolve. He paid attention. He noticed. He could name all of the things he loved about sweet vermouth at the drop of a hat. And after he walked away, the familiar feeling of my face getting hot compounded with my chest tightening. I was crying. For some reason, the way he not only saw the world but really noticed it, just fucking got to me. Like pulling the last inevitable Jenga piece, holding the tower up, I couldn't help but topple face first into how I was really feeling in that moment, which was sad. I felt sad. I know why I felt sad, even if I'm not in a place to share it with you in this monologue. Now, look, to be clear, this crying was not disruptive to the restaurant. Nobody but the two people at my table noticed. What it was really disruptive to was the way I wanted to be seen by others. I like to think that I'm the Marie Kondo of compartmentalizing my feelings, but I'm not. The truth is, 
I have struggled to fully feel my feelings this year until they came crying out of me all over the dinner table, all because a bartender poetically described what he likes about sweet vermouth. So I asked my therapist, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Well, what did you do wrong? He retorts. I cried in the middle of dinner and spilled my emotional guts all over two friends who did not sign up for that kind of dinner, all because of some romanticized herb garden. Duh. And trying to gauge my seriousness, my therapist says, yeah, you felt an emotion, you expressed it. What did you do wrong? Sounds like a pretty human thing to me. Well, I, I tell him how messy it felt. I felt too messy, too loud, too emotional, too making it about me, too much me. So you felt like you were being too much of yourself? Therapists call this moment a breakthrough. Oprah calls it an aha moment. I call these moments, oh fuck, yep, I hear it. <laughs> I even tried to justify my tears a few seconds ago by saying nobody else in the restaurant noticed. So what if they had? Sometimes people are sad and they cry. Sometimes people are loud. Sometimes they have a bad day. Sometimes they have a really good day and their level of excitement might annoy you. Yeah, I'm talking about me. I have been told that many times that my level of excitement is overwhelming for people. Well, so what? I don't want to dim myself down. While we celebrate the ideas of self-love and self-care, maybe we can add self-grace and self-understanding to that. Instead of focusing on loving myself when I'm at my best, maybe it's time to try loving myself when I'm a mess. While comedian Blair Postman loves to lead with mess, her bio starts out stating she is a twice-married, previously bankrupt woman who began her fourth career as a comedian at the age of 43 years old. She's known for her explosive, fast-paced delivery and comedy that often spans unusual topics. You can catch Blair stand-up at clubs and alt rooms in New York City and around the country. And definitely, please go see her solo show, Lady ADHD, every month at The Caveat in New York. Or even on the road, she'll actually be at San Francisco's Sketchfest in January of 2023. Let's get messy with Blair Postman. You know, I, I I rarely have Diet Coke. I know. Like, rarely. But when I do, I, like, enjoy it. I Like, at a movie theater, I'll get a Diet Coke. Or, like, every once in a while, after a really long day, and I want it ice cold. So I do cold brew instead because it's healthier. But then I also am, like, still trying to quit I'm cigarettes. You know what I mean? Oh, Where I'm like, oh, is <laughs> I've done that. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Just closing stuff up. This is my Diet Coke dream for you. Candace. Okay. The next time you have a Diet Coke, I want it to be a small glass bottle that's been oh. in a refrigerator for several hours. Do not okay. put it over ice, but so it needs to be cold from the refrigerator and then oh open it and drink it immediately. That is amazing. That is the best of the best. That sounds good. Where are these glass bottles? Well, uh, they're at um, very nice, like bougie restaurants in places like Brooklyn um, or elsewhere. You can occasionally, and they're like $9 each, which is ridiculous. Of course. And of course. occasionally you will find them in a supermarket, like massively overpriced, right. but they also have the benefit of being adorable. So. Well, th that's true. So. That is true. I love that. I love the inflation of the things that like are not 
good for we know it's not oh, good for us like even when I was the last time I was in New York I was like feeling good I've made so many healthy decisions and then of course it's like you know 11 30 at night and I'm in stilettos <laughs> and I've had a martini I'm just like oh god the cigarettes are calling oh, and I'm like the 20 dollars cigarette 20 dollars I I, I quit God. that a long time ago, but that's sort that's of what good. the that's the feeling I get with the small, long time refrigerated Diet Coke in a glass All bottle. Right. It's the same idea. All right. <laughs> it's Perfect. sadder, but yeah, it's I know. the I, same idea. <laughs> it's better than my cold brew addiction. <laughs> like I, it's, it is at a certain point. Like when you have to apologize multiple times a day to be like, oh, it's the cold it's, brew. It, I promise. Oh, it's no, promise. Candace, I do know because that is my whole life without any cold brew. That is, I am, that is why I cannot have cold brew. I didn't know what it was and I had a big old cup one day and my boss is like, no, you don't get any more. That's ever, not, I don't mean today. I mean ever, you never get any more effort. But you on cold brew is me just walking around, just waking up in the morning oh, being man. myself. I love it. Lady ADHD. Um, I have so many questions I want to ask you. I also just like love the write up that I received just as like your kind of your blur of your bio. And just like, I don't know when the last time you uh, you because your your face is making me think when the last no, time you I, read well, it. Hold on, are you like, nervous? It's more that it's not that I haven't looked at it in a while. It's just that I tend to like play with it constantly. So I don't I I, I I love okay. it. I love that you immediately lean in with like twice married, recently br- br- recently bankrupt and began her fourth career. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I find it's, like, it's best to just, just lay it, it all out there. there. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that so much. Is that how you've always been? And I asked that having been in therapy yesterday, just <laughs> trying to ask my therapist, like, but how do I, how am I, how can I be less of myself in the world? Because I just want people to like the likable versions of myself. And like, I'm embarrassed by the messy, loud versions. And he's like telling me, well, that's not how the world should work. You should be able to, like, what's wrong with being a little loud and messy and human? Um, so I just was so delighted to, uh, to read that kind of leaned in version. Candace, of, you um, are a, a, an esteemed, famous uh, actress. <laughs> You've been in all kinds of things. You've had these oh colossal hit podcasts, but today's your lucky day because I'm okay. here to tell you <laughs> how to be loud <laughs> and the messy version of yourself in the world. Uh, and it's just, yes. just stop caring. You know, I actually, I was always some version of this. I was always some version of, um, uh, I am talking when other people are trying to talk and I am much louder than other people. And I gesticulate a lot. And I, you know, all of that, um, all of that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not a wallflower. And sometimes I've tried to be, but it doesn't work out. And, uh, I'm very excitable, both to the negative side and the positive side. And, but when I was younger, so when I was like, you know, uh, past grammar school, I'd say starting in junior high through college or law school, I, and probably, probably through my first wedding, let's say through my first wedding, I was, uh, I was really, I was really trying to be perfect. And let me explain, because people apparently in my life, some people, including my first husband, seem to think, that I had the capacity to be perfect and to never make mistakes. Um, and so, you know, were they narcissists or were they just people who really believed in my potential? <laughs> but I, I really, I really was 
I hated making mistakes. I hated interrupting people. I hated, um, I didn't know this back then. I didn't get diagnosed in my 30s and didn't pay attention to my ADHD until like my 40s. But I didn't realize where it came from, but I just always felt like I was forgetting something or I didn't, and I really didn't want to be. And I spent a lot of energy trying to be, you know, uh, quieter, thinner, all the things we're supposed to be. Insert your thing here. And whatever that meant to be perfect, to not forget anything, to not to be super organized, but, and yet to do everything, to do everything in the world and yet be able to never like forget anything and to be able to do it all mm-hmm. on my own. And it is exhausting. It's exhausting. And it also doesn't work. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> like, it, and the, I sort of discovered that being who I am is so much more interesting than being what other people wanted to be. And it's certainly more fun for me. Um, it's certainly also, um, some of the people too, who I thought were the most would from out, right. This is the, the Instagram mistake that we all make, right. The outward appearance is the real life. And so Mm -hmm. I would get, you know, I would feel like there were people in the world, high school, college, work life, whatever it might be, who were judgmental of me. And the more I was myself, the more I raised my hand and said, I don't know what that acronym means in the meeting or like, you know, I'm pretty smart. I don't know what it means. Somebody else probably doesn't know either or or whatever it might be or laying out like the messiness of your personal life, not TMI, not like, hey, I just met you and here's my life story, like having appropriate boundaries, but these mm-hmm. little, these little messy things it, and just kind of saying, yeah, that's 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 me. That's what I think. That's what I'm missing. Um, those the people I thought a lot of the time who would be the most judgmental were the most embracing of it. Like, oh my god, I'm because they're sitting here clench, you know, white knuckling it through their lives. Um, that's why yeah. I thought they seemed really judgmental. They are really judgmental about themselves, and so they're probably yeah. looking at me and having mixed feelings uh, along the lines of, on the one hand, if that was me, I would be terrified for sort of being that open or blunt or what have you. On the other hand, that seems very free and I wish I could do that too. So it doesn't always work out, but I think it works out better than the other way. I think it does. I think that that's, I hope that it does. I mean, going back to when the idea, because I think that that is something so universally relatable is that we're all trying to be all the things and do them all very, very well, especially, you know, not to just prior, like to gender it, but no women, which women have been told that they're women or people identifying as women or whatever. Always. Yes. So what in what ways did you start to realize, oh, this isn't working? Like, was it something internalized or were you just seeing it in kind of mirrored to you in the way that your life was going? Right. Well, there's there were steps along the way. Like I um, when uh, my first husband, uh, who I was only married to very briefly, uh, great ceremony, though, beautiful reception, um, great honeymoon. Uh, but the. <laughs> Uh, when, you know, I always felt like I was walking on eggshells, but maybe that was, maybe that was just me because I'm difficult and maybe, you know, this person's going to help me get my life together or whatever. And, uh, you know, when that person revealed to me at one point that, um, he was 
annoyed that uh, a family member of mine had given that him a birthday gift because he didn't want any birthday gifts. And so he wasn't going to talk to that family member. And I and I find myself jumping through all these hoops, like begging him not to to act this way and realizing, like, wait a second, this is not going to get better. This is only going to get worse. It's only been four, five, mm-hmm. six months so far. Uh, it's only going to get worse. Um, I need to get out of this because I am I am suffocating and I can some some outer body experience sort of part of me could look down at me and see what was happening. And like I've watched enough Oprah. I know that this is a (laughs) bad situation that's not going to get better and I can't fix it. And he's always been like this. He's just been turning up the heat as the months and years have gone by until we get to this point. Um, I, I think um, my husband, I just say this for people who are in recovery. I just want them to know before I say this, that I have been given permission to talk about these things. So um, my current husband, P.S. doesn't love it when I call him my current husband, my husband, <laughs> my husband, my husband, who is the second person I married, my husband now, um, who we've been married for 15 years, um, when he's a recovering alcoholic, has been for uh, just about 10 years. And uh, when he went into recovery, um, like all good people who are really trying to be perfect, even though they're not perfect and they know it, uh, was really good at giving advice and trying to control everything or try trying to control mm-hmm. everything. And so I went into a uh, group called Al-Anon that is for um, family members, friends, any adjacent, we'll call it people for um, alcoholics, drug addiction, uh, what have you. And um, and you kind of go in thinking it's like learning how to commiserate and deal with your recovering person or maybe not in recovery, uh, addict, alcoholic, uh, but it's not. Uh, it's, it's to help you uh, because you're crazy. Um, those are my words. A lot of people in Alabama wouldn't like me saying those words or talking about those words. But what it, re- but it's re- reprogramming like a, the way of trying to maybe thinking that you're fixing someone or helping. And you're someone. so obsessed with everything else going on around you that you're kind of missing your own shit. I don't know if we can say shit on this podcast. I just said it yes, twice now. You fucking okay. Can. Yes. Well, that's the whole show now. It's all like <laughs> George Carlin's Seven Words You Can't Say on Television. No, but it's it's so you're not looking your own shit. You've made yourself crazy. You've made yourself or, or not made yourself, but you are you're you're a codependent. You're not focusing on yeah. the stuff that you're ignoring about your own life. Uh that you know, you have plenty to focus on about yourself that does it. And you know what? It's it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt the alcoholic if if the alcoholic or drug addict is gonna eat, drink or drug or hoard or you know whatever it is that they're uh, addicted uh, their drug of choice is um, it's not because you did or didn't like load or unload the dishwasher or didn't remind them again to you know uh, get their car fixed or whatever it is it's gonna it's if you take care of yourself. The rest of the world is actually going to be a lot easier for you, um, whether or not the person you're Mm -hmm. with is um, in a solid recovery or not. And so that I mean, I had felt like I had been clenching my fists and gritting, uh, grinding my teeth and um, metaphorically, but also maybe in real life since I was, you know, 11 years old until I was 40. 
And it was different times um, obvious to me that I was not doing a lot of the things I wanted to do because I was afraid, even though outwardly, well before I was 40 my whole life, I seemed like the kind of person who wasn't afraid. I seemed like a, in air quotes, brave person. And, mm -hmm. and that was just because I would tell somebody to shut up who was being a jerk, or I would, um, you know, get up in front of people, not from a, not from a comedian performance standpoint, but say, get up in front of class and give a report or, or um, do something at work that see that other people might have a fear or phobia about. But I was very, everything I did was based on fear. It was based on, um, you know, not um, thinking that the things that I wanted were okay to want in life. Um, some of that in, came internally, but love that was taught to me from a very young age. And, and denying the kind of life and profession and so forth that I wanted to have. And I denied that self to myself for a long time. So I was a very scared person who didn't seem very scared. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, the time has come. It's time for me to start paying attention to what I'm putting into my body. I need fuel. I need energy. I need plant-based proteins and superfoods. Well, thank goodness, 310 Nutrition is helping me and you, my listeners, in this new year with protein and superfood-rich products with so many options of delicious flavors and preferences. I can't just drink water. I like water with flavor. I like protein with flavor. And thank goodness, 310 Nutrition offers so many different options. They have six flavors like lemon lime, strawberry, peach mango, wild berry, watermelon, and cucumber, which is exactly what I need when I'm trying to hydrate throughout the day because you know I love my cold brew coffees, but those are dehydrating and I need to rehydrate. So thank goodness their Hydrate Point supercharges water with key vitamins, electrolytes, and minerals. You just add one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, which can provide the same amount of hydration that is equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. And I need it. Not only am I getting rehydrated, but it helps to start my day with more energy, greater focus. I'm feeling refreshed while maintaining my hydration without having to drink as much H2O on its own. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with Superbloom and giving my listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. 
With so many sample packs, new products, it is really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you're going to use. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code SUPERBLOOM right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310nutrition.com and use code SUPERBLOOM. Now, just in finding the root of where that came from um, and in just saying that you were taught that, I was actually having so much of this conversation just um, or just on and off with my therapist. Well, I'll charge you half of whatever they're charging. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll throw in some Diet Cokes hmm. as well. Only the best. Obviously. Only the best. Obviously. Um, but I, I think it is, um, you know, so interesting when you start at a later point in life to look back at because all of a sudden I feel like you're all these like triggers from your youth start really rearing their heads in their 30s. You know, for some reason, they just seem like not as you're not aware of them in your 20s. Or I don't It's like, I don't know if they're not popping up as much. I as, think uh, me personally, I was going out and drinking more, maybe. I don't know. That too. <laughs> Same. Me. Yeah, yeah. That could also. There's I just was distracted. to numb it. Like, or you're dating yep. or you're doing early yes. career stuff where you're trying to get ahead or you're traveling, <laughs> you know, on a bus around Europe for a nickel or whatever <laughs> your way of numbing it, right, in our 20s. Yes. Right? But it being this point in your life where you've obviously had uh, reflection on, you know, maybe asking yourself like, hey, where did some of this come from? Do you see some of it being taught to you by whether it's just the way that you were raised or do you feel like now looking back, was there a version of this taught to you because you didn't realize that maybe, you know, your neurodivergence of like learning different all of a sudden got kind of like thrown at you in a way that that kind of um changed your way of seeing yourself in the world i i would say that um yes i was taught that way i was raised very much (laughs) um i uh i was a very um outgoing um precocious child and you know i read very young i started reading very young when i was like two years old um but i also i loved to make up songs i used to play on the piano in kindergarten and uh, uh, I used to sing. I got this lead role in this musical when I was in second grade. That's what I that's what I wanted to do when I was six, seven years old and on. After that, I would start listening to comedy way younger. Like I'm listening to George Carlin and Richard Pryor records, records, like records, like vinyl records and not in a hip way. Like that's all we had uh, records. You know, when I was way too young, like nine, ten. <laughs> 10, 11 years old and um, <laughs> memorizing all of it and loving all of that. Oh, perfect. And yeah. um, but the vision that the, my parents and people around me had was not that life. Like uh, it was considered to be um, not, not evil. Like it's not like, you know, we lived, went to a church where dancing was a sin or, you know, something like that. But it was just uh, it's a waste. You know, you can't succeed at that. Um, you, you will fail if you try to do that sort of thing. Uh, it is a waste of whatever intelligence you have. It's a waste of that intelligence. It's just ridiculous. Stop it. (laughs) Don't think about that. And so, uh, anything even along those lines just wasn't really rewarded in any way. I think what the, um, the ADHD issues, um, only amplified that in that it was just, um, I would I was always circling around being a performer of one kind or another, but never really doing it and always having these 
always having these ideas to get me close without actually pulling the trigger on and becoming a performer or someone in the arts. And um, I, I think the ADHD just made it maybe more likely that I was always finding a way to be a performer in whatever I did. So I went to law school, you know, people say, why don't you become a trial lawyer? And I'm like, well, that was appealing. However, it turns out it's actually a lot of reading very small footnotes. Um, you know, it's, it's actually not that fun. Or um, even in the jobs I've had more recently where I've, you know, given presentations or been in some kind of, some kind of sales-ish capacity that I, you know, I can bring that to it. But the ADHD made it more irrepressible for me. I think if I, I don't know if this is true, like it, it, perfectly true, but I have one small theory that if I wasn't ADHD, it would have been easier for me to sublimate and shove everything down to the bottom that I wanted to, at a certain point in my life, wanted to shove down and ignore about myself and what I wanted. And I would have just never done it. Now, mm. is that true? Is that like provably true? I I don't I know, probably not. But I do know that the ADHD makes, you know, it really because it's more impulsive, but it also controls things like emotions. It's a certain brain chemistry in your it, that means that um that chemistry um regulates things like focus, but also things like attention and impulsivity and emotions. So it's it's very hard when those things well up to repress them. And so I, it was very hard. It got so hard to ignore all those things that I really wanted to do. And then just to bring it back a bit, when my husband, when the shit went down, that's what we call the time in my life where like he got in so much trouble. It was undeniable. Everybody was fighting with everyone in her family, you know, like just with your current current husband, husband, current husband, current husband. Um, When all that happened 10 ish or so years ago, uh, the height of his. Yeah. Yeah. Like when he was really hitting rock bottom um, that it caused so much um, disdain and anger from people in my life that I was in my family and, and just sort of the world that I was always trying to please. They were already so angry, annoyed, telling me all the ways I had screwed up, how he had screwed up, all the all the things we had done wrong that I now had nothing to lose. And that's when I started performing. So when I say part of it is that I went to Al-Anon, that's true. But you know how often you'll hear people say things along the lines of, you know, that thing that you thought was slamming a door in your face was actually opening a window. The thing, the yeah. thing that you think was going to be the worst thing actually turns out it was doing you a huge favor. And his rock bottom and everything that I was going through surrounding that um, felt horrible at the time. I didn't want to go through any of that. And so many people were angry, disappointed, um, telling me why I was bad, why he was bad, all of why we were bad together, all the all the things about everybody um, who was bad and angry at me. It was very freeing because there was no that was the thing that kept me from really trying to be a performer for real in my life. And it was suddenly not an issue because they were already really pissed off. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I don't have to be good anymore. I don't have to like, be, you know what? Thank you for giving me. I am still, you know, 40, for, yeah. 41, 42, holding on to this thing of a, as someone who's still trying to be a good girl. 
And it turns out I can't be. I have all the things that I was always worried about being thought of me, et cetera, is now very obvious that many, many people think that of me. So now I don't have to pretend anymore that I'm a good girl. I can just go do the thing I want to do. I love that so much. And it is so it, I, it drives I'm, I'm the same way where I have to remind myself I am an adult. I am a grown woman. Why am I still worried? I am allowed worried? to have opinions that I don't have to be based to have opinions. on things. Yes. And just the thought of like, just mess. I'm allowed to be a little bit loud. I'm allowed to think that, you know, I'm allowed to say something that comes out completely wrong and be like, well, you know what? I just was having a tough day and right. I didn't sleep. Or even and, was it wrong? And that's what like, you got that day. Or that wasn't wrong. You know, it just yeah. was your way of putting it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All of those things. Well, I know that, you know, just hearing you talk about um, your husband's addiction and also and what that I mean, I know that that puts such the fact that you guys are in your marriage right mm-hmm. now is such a beautiful thing that doesn't always happen. No, no, and no, not I at think, all. And I'm, and I'm not. <laughs> let's just say it could have gone another way, could have gone another way many times. Of course, of, of course, I'm sure there is someone listening right now who who feels all of those sentiments. Oh, yeah. I think it it was such an interesting thing seeing there was like a, you know, even regardless of where you stand politically, mm-hmm. um, but just the fact that there was leaked audio of Joe Biden trying to contact his son. Oh, yeah. It, while oh, he was it was in the so... throes of his addiction. Oh, God. And again, regardless where you stand politically, but no, I think it was it's just so heart... necessary because every it's not necessary that that's out in the world. It just pulls at your heartstrings because everyone knows someone who has struggled with addiction. I know. If we could all just pretend that that, stop pretending that that isn't the case, I, you know, I think it would clear up a lot of anger and aggression out there in the world. Yeah. Because it's a lot of people, honestly, and it's not, you know, you'll hear stories in the rooms about people um, who the addict or alcoholic um, parent let's say, and we don't have kids, but parent would be like the favorite parent because like the people who are on the other side, like me, the Al-Anon or, or you know, a codependent person is is just the day-to-day bigger jerk like around the house. Yeah. And it's just, if we, if we could just, and so much of it goes towards an energy of either covering up what we think is bad about the other person is doing or about ourselves or about our lives or how really everything is really our fault. And we're, we project this anger because really we're mad at ourselves. Like if we could just let go of the idea that, you know, I'm going to go on a limb and say most people know somebody within one to two degrees of separation who has some kind of serious addiction problem. And that might be drugs and alcohol. It might be food. It might be hoarding. It might be, there are others you know, who have something like that, I think we'd all, people would be a little less going around the world with less of a chip on their shoulder and less angry. It would be, they'd be unburdening themselves to a point that would actually be a big benefit to everyone around us. Well, and we would release the shame yes. and stigma from just getting help, you know, and also leaning into the resources that already exist. You know, there are incredible resources. There are incredible communities. And if only it could open up more for people to not feel like the shame and stigma that they have to, which also leads into, um, I think, you know, the shame and stigma that can revolve around mental health Mm -hmm. and just, or even, um, you know, any sort of diagnosis that you get. And I feel like this is coming up more and more, especially for women Mm -hmm. in their like thirties and forties getting diagnosed with things that all of a sudden turn on this light bulb and go like, wow, this makes like, so much sense Oh my sense God, that's to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm also like, 
What's crazy is, you know, all I grew up with an understanding of ADHD was it's what kids had in elementary school. And then it in the but you don't want to like actually tell anyone that they have it because then they're just going to get put on Ritalin or something. Or and then everyone or everyone um, says they have ADHD so that they can get um, (laughs) Adderall. uh, Thank you, Adderall. So they, they can like go out and party right. or like stay up and study. And that and that's it. Like, I feel like that was the conversation of what it means to be right. um, diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Are you, are you millennial? You're millennial-ish? Ish? I think I'm considered millennial-ish. millennial-ish. Yeah, I mean, that's I, all right. I understand there's a whole stigma that some people de- don't declare they're millennial. So I am Gen X. There's a purpose to this besides just having fun <laughs> with millennials. Um, and that is just that when I... there. Of course, somewhere there were people being diagnosed with ADHD. But when I was in grammar school in the 70s and junior high and high school in the 80s, there was not ADHD. It was not a thing. Um, it was not everywhere. Um, it, there, and I, I, from what I understand, I, first of all, I premise by saying I am not a psychiatrist. I read things, but mostly headlines, you know. And so, like, this is my understanding. But my understanding is, you know, when it was being diagnosed, it was largely males who were being very actively um, hyperactive and even to the point of being sort of violent, you know, like Mm -hmm. punching a wall or throwing chairs around the classroom. And then, yes, you were expected largely to grow out of it. Um, And for me, it's interesting because when I finally, you know, I I had a lot of shame, the fear, the shame, it all goes together in a, in a lovely sandwich of, of um, things we do to ourselves. But, you know, that fear, a lot of it came around disappoint, being afraid of disappointing people. And a lot of that came around of the times throughout my life where I was told like, how did you not remember that assignment or that, that, that project that you were supposed to do and yet you did all this other stuff great but you totally blew it because you didn't you know hand in your assignment on time or you had so much potential but you never quite reached your potential or being told that you are lazy like we know you're smart because we saw this happening when you were in kindergarten or when you were in open classrooms in grammar school but now um, you're not paying as much attention to uh, your physics class as your AP history class. And so you're kind of lazy. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not tons. And that cumulative effect over years and decades is a lot of shame, a lot of self-blame, a lot of low self-esteem. And so when I was maybe 30 or 31, I was at work listening to like an NPR station and they had somebody on describing ADHD. So this is early 90s now. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me. And I went and I got a diagnosis, but they they were still really, um, they weren't diagnosing as many women. They still don't. Mm-hmm. Um, girls and women and people presenting as such. They do not, uh, they did not, give me anything like um, uh, Ritalin or um, uh, or Adderall. They gave me something that is, oh my gosh, I forget the name of it, but it's used um, also for like, it's a quit smoking drug and, and other things. And um, it really didn't think, because they didn't want to just give those pills out because even a lot of the doctors had this stigma that like it was going to be used and abused. Whereas what's really been found and and what the research is so now is that it just makes us normal. You know, if you don't have ADHD and you take this pill, yeah, it's gonna, it might be nothing but a party pill. For me, it just means like, 
I might remember my keys, you know, which is, which is not a party. I mean, I don't care how old I am. That's still not a party. And I, I, I and so it just makes me so frustrated. So because for all these years, I was given prescriptions that really didn't work when there were others out there because someone made the judgment that I didn't really need it. And to me, implicitly in there is also maybe the judgment that, you know, women don't really have it or it's not really that bad or really you can control it. And being told that you can control something that you know you can't control is maddening. It's as if you had um, some kind of thyroid disorder that made you gain 200 pounds and you were told to control your thyroid with your brain. And it just doesn't know you don't have the chemistry. Your thyroid is not making the chemicals you need in order to control it regularly. And the same as in my, my brain, my body is not making the chemicals I need to do those things that you think are so easy. And I'm glad they're easy for you, but they're not easy for me. But guess what? Some fucking things are easy for me that are really hard for you <laughs> and that you will never be able to do. So I, I, I really, because of the shame around it and because so many people in my life just told me it wasn't real, that you should be worried about getting addicted when the research now shows that people who don't get treated for the ADHD are much more likely to be addicted to substances, not, not Adderall, heroin, mm -hmm. alcohol, cocaine, self-medicate in other ways being told all that stuff that I didn't even really take it seriously until after my husband's, um, around the time of my husband's rock bottom. And I started taking my own self seriously. And so, you know, his rock bottom got him off substances. And I guess you could say it got me on substances. <laughs> and I, I, I started being like, well, this just really delving more into research and trying to seek out really knowledgeable people instead of letting the voices around me, and I'm not just talking about like family or I'm talking about just people who really Society. feel like they can tell you that ADHD isn't real, who met you one minute ago. And, mm -hmm. um, and the, it's not the only thing, but to me, and medication doesn't work the same way in all people. I am not saying I am pro medication for people for whom it works. I am not trying to make any kind of blanket statement of what everyone should do or be on or take or not take. But and dosages matter as well. Dosages like matter. Who's Everybody's like, it takes time. Your metabolism it's a is different. It's everything is Every, different. Yes. And so it's just uh it makes me so crazy about all the years I wasted not taking care of this thing. Um, but at least I got diagnosed and at least I did get it taken care of. There's still people out there today, women in particular, and I think it's really just, it's, you might say it has super bloomed during, um, during COVID and during quarantine when people just had more time with themselves and without inside yeah. input and they did more research and came to know about ADHD and maybe that they were ADHD and doc diagnosed. But a lot of women in particular and women of color especially Men of color too, but women of color getting a diagnosis is very difficult. Getting the right medication, as is, is often the case with medications that have nothing to do with ADHD or medical health that has nothing to do with ADHD, especially difficult for women of color. And I, I mean, I don't know if the world is just afraid that if we like actually treat these women that, you know, we're going to also want other things, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you're not going to be able to, I don't think it's such a conspiracy that literally they're not um, treating women because uh, then they're going to be equipped to take over the world. But, you know, I'm not saying it's not.
uh, true either. I have a feeling that the work that you've done, especially just um, with your comedy and, and using your social media platforms to not only make people laugh, but also share in your experiences as a female with ADHD. Um, I want to also kind of lead everyone into how you got into your career of comedy, because you also mentioned law. So there was <laughs> so there was a point you were in law school or you became a lawyer. I was a lawyer. I was a lawyer for a hot minute. I I was a lawyer for maybe two years. And then what was your career? after? OK, that? my career after that. So I didn't really want to go to law school, but my whole life, everyone's like, you have to go to law school. Um, you have a big mouth. Turns out that's not what law school is. Uh, and my first. <laughs> there's a little more was, to it. Turns out there's more to it. But I didn't. You know, there was no Google in fairness to me. It wasn't like I could just Google it. But like I did a little. I'm like, I get it when I get there. Everyone else did research about what law school is and requires. Not me. Um, so I went and I uh, did terrible my first year. And then it seemed to me everyone in my class then decided to kind of be sort of open about how maybe they thought I was stupid. That sort of pettiness, like you sort of treating me as if I am less than you. Now I'm going to kick your ass. Now I'm going to do well. Uh, game on. And nothing game is on. more motivating. You know, there's a lot of things that make the dopamine and other chemicals in an ADHD brain needs to really hyper focus. And, and you know, that uh, that could be interest. Um, it could be urgency, but it also can be pettiness. And uh, I'm petty as fuck. And so if I want to be and so <laughs> I wound up doing OK and I graduated and took and passed a few bar exams. And then um I decided I was going to do entertainment law, media law, see how I'm circling. I'm these little concentric circles. Mm -hmm. And I did mm -hmm. that. And uh, I worked for a First Amendment group for one year and then went to a federal government organization. And that was awful. And so very, very boring. Uh, and then I decided I would uh, have more fun as an agent, a uh, talent agent, uh, manager. And uh, I applied to be in, start in the mailroom of a, what was then the William Morris Agency. I think it's now William Morris Endeavor. And I did the whole mailroom to assistant thing. And then I came back. Uh, I was in New York. I came back to D.C. And I did um, I was a speaker agent, a speaker agency. Uh, I did do some improv comedy during that time, but it was very like just for fun kind of stuff. Like it was never. And then I would quit every time I was repping someone because I'm like, it wouldn't be ethical for me to be a an agent for speakers and to do improv comedy on the side because that's performing. Who no one cares that you're doing improv comedy, <laughs> but whatever. I, so I, I would start and stop with that a lot. And uh, then I decided I uh, it was too boring at the speaker's agency. <laughs> and um, to no one's um, distress uh, at the time at that particular organization, I left, started my own thing, went in-house at Second City, where I sold speeches and trainings there. And then... Um, which Second City is a comedy. Chicago, yeah. Sketch and improv. So all those folks from Saturday Night Live. So it's like, exactly. You were circling you were around it. Now I'm selling it, it now. Entire time, right. I, entire time. Came back to be a manager, had a comedy festival wow. that, of course, I wasn't in because I wasn't a comedian. And I met all these people and then uh, came back to New York, was a comedy manager, had some great clients who are very famous now, some of them, but not because of me. And, uh, and good for them. And, uh, and they would have been with or without me at the beginning and, uh, had this comedy festival and I was so, it just couldn't fail. I, and I poured all of this money into it in its final year when we were going into a past economic downturn in 2008. And, uh, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, um, 
the advertisers and, and the sponsors didn't show up like they had in years past. And I don't know, some part of me just decided that, well, if I just keep going and keep pretending like everything's fine, it'll all work out. And of course it didn't. And I went bankrupt. I filed. I didn't. I don't mean like I had no more money left. I mean, paperwork was filed. Legal decisions were made. And yeah. um, this is before my husband got sober. We moved. I picked a whole new career. Uh, I decided to learn how to be a media uh, advertising uh, sponsorship salesperson, which I, uh, you know, have done for 10 or so years. Um, we moved to another part of the uh, East Coast for that first job, which is wound up where uh, my husband got sober and all this other Eventually, really good stuff happened, but first, some bad stuff happened. But it wasn't like I, I had a choice of um, like anything I wanted to do. I was looking for something that I might be able to do that might be able to make me money and help me rebuild some small semblance of a life and, a, and maybe a nest egg. Like maybe I could retire before I'm 80 or 90. Um, well, and the optics, it sounds like, of the life that you were like meant to somewhat pseudo lead. You know, it still wasn't like the entertainment mm. life. Oh, no, but, not at all. Yes. Yeah. And uh, when I I took that job and uh, like I said, another part of the East Coast, it wasn't we were there a year or a year and a half, maybe a little bit more before my husband really hit rock bottom. And so then at what point, what what was the day that you finally said, I'm going to go do stand up tonight? Was it an open mic night where did you did you write your did you write your bits beforehand? Or were you just was this like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? And oh, you just went up there. But you kept on your that top show on. Because <laughs> look, that show. First of all, I preface it by saying I love that show. I love that show. I love everyone on that show. The only thing I don't like or is the start of her is these massive leaps in her career that she is able to make of course and her course, no ever not ever writing anything ever and somehow everyone thinks it's brilliant also her outfits they're great i love looking at them but but she the actress is great her ma today i think her manager would be the one who's the comic anyway the um the it was my my husband had just let's see he had been sober maybe four five six months and I had taken an improv class. I didn't really need an improv class, but I needed somewhere to do something. So I took this class. And it's like a gym for working. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like, right. yes. Like an, it, yes. And, and um, I, and there was a, um, a club there that had just closed and hadn't it later reopened called Dead Crow Comedy in Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, while they were still looking for their next venue, there was this open mic at this, uh, the real cafe. And uh, I would go and I went and watched a few times. And the guy I took the class from was also did stand up. And he um, was there. And uh, he said, uh, Well, is are you going to do stand up tonight? And I'm like, uh, Wasn't counting on it. He's like, Well, the first slot, you know, it's literally like a sign up sheet and there's like 40 people on it, but no one wants to go first. They're not as old as me. And I'm like, he's like, well, slots number one is open. And I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go first. Because if I'm going to do something, I'm going to tear the Band-Aid off kind of person. And so it only took like, you know, 20 years and then 10 seconds. Um, and I had, I kind of made something up based on some kind of improv scene I had done. And it's only, it was like three or four minutes. I mean, my God, I, you, I can't even say my name in three or four minutes on this podcast. So, I mean, it's not hard for me to fill the time. And it was just, I think it was, some of it was funny and some of it was more extemporaneous. And I think it was just very clear that I wasn't uncomfortable on stage and 
like you could hear me and I, I didn't like run off stage and fear like even though the material wasn't really material it was clear I was having fun being up there yeah. and uh just kind of took off from there at what point in as you started to form your comedy mm -hmm. career and your comedy act did you start um w when was lady adhd born well Interestingly, Lady ADHD was born in quarantine because I was asked by a couple of people or suggested to me that I should do a one-person show because I have a lot of material and stand-up material. And in particular, I have some odd bits, and some of them involve using flip charts. If we haven't lost you yet, audience, I, please hang in. I know I said <laughs> flip charts coming. I promise it's okay. And... I started putting, um, and those just came about because that's how my mind worked. Like I would see these hidden patterns and I know now, but hidden patterns and connections and details. And it was a fun way to lay it out. So as I, as I was putting the show together, it became, I got some, I did a run through with some people and it was, it was perfectly fine feedback, but I was getting frustrated trying to express myself about these flip charts and why I use them and how it lays everything out. And I would say I just get so frustrated with people not understanding that I'm using these flip charts so people can see the inside of my mind because it's going to make it funnier for them. Like it's going to help me guide them through this funny thing, even though we don't know each other. We don't have any context in comedy. The hard part, funny people might not be funny on stage or in stand up because you have to create very quickly a context and where the joke makes sense, right? It's not like we're having a conversation for an hour and then I put a joke in and of course it makes sense. We've been talking about this thing for an hour. So I use a flip chart in part to make context, but also because it's, it's, it's funny and sometimes pictures are funny. And the, um, I suddenly came to realize that all these flip chart bits that I had um, created over the years uh, were, were because of my ADHD. That's where they sort of came from. That's why all these, the reason that I had all this odd material about hidden patterns and connections about the history of Super Bowl halftime shows or Shel Silverstein and the Giving Tree or Schoolhouse Rock or whatever it might be is because of my ADHD brain. And I made, I, I wound up kind of putting sort of TED Talk segues and breakdowns um, as the connective tissue between these flip chart comedy bits, explaining sort of where they came from, how my mind works, and why these kinds of, the more serious reasons about why these kinds of connections happen, but also the frustrating things that people don't see when I'm just doing a comedy show. So the things that are difficult, um, you know, putting together a bit um, that is, it seems like it's just a fun rabbit hole about cats, but also explaining that, you know, that ability to go down that rabbit hole and hyper-focus has a, um, has a reputation, um, for being just about silly, fun things like cats, but also people with ADHD hyper-focus on things like negative feelings about ourselves. And that releases dopamine too, because it's very interesting to us. And so we can spiral into, you know, go into a shame spiral about that. Or we can open up a calendar just to check out like what open weekends I have over the next three months for, to do road shows. And suddenly, because of the way our ADHD brains um, interpret time, which is just now and not right now. Those are kind of the only two options. It can suddenly feel 
Like all of the things on your calendar are due right now, right then. Everything's happening. You have to do everything now. Everything must be finished right now today. And it just fills me with anxiety. So I wanted to show as a person who has also in my life been seen as brave when I knew I was not brave, I, I wanted to show all the great things and the cool stuff that comes from a, an ADHD brain and the ability to hyper-focus and, and to see hidden patterns, connections, details, and so forth. But I wanted to make sure people understood the other side, which is sometimes it makes me very anxious. Sometimes um, I have a bit of an anger problem or excitability problem. Sometimes, you know, and I have to learn how to manage all that. And I didn't want to get on stage and just make it seem like, look, ADHD's made me really quick and witty. And maybe it has. But I also wanted to show that other side of it, too, where where that it, the good, the bad that comes with the good or the difficult that comes with the fun. The difficult that comes with the fun. It's, it, I wrote down one of the things that you say. I, th- I don't know if you say this in every single show, but just uh, that one of the big life lessons that you've realized at this point is we don't know. Yes. We don't know where the next big idea is coming from. And and just even going back to, I, I don't remember if we were recording or mm-hmm. not, but just talking about kind of stepping into new creative ventures and, you know, you had congratulated me on the podcast mm-hmm. and I was saying I feel incredibly nauseous because it's so scary <laughs> right. for people to like, I'd rather just make it and then nobody see it, but it's just the joy of making it. Right. And it's the part where everybody has to look at me now. Um, but but that's the thing is it, it it takes time and it's an evolution. It's getting on the stage the first time and saying, you know what, there's something here. I don't know what it is. And it's OK. Like, let's dive in and go deeper because you got to start somewhere and you don't know where the next idea comes from. And you the it's the it's you have to also it can't be just the final product. You have to recognize the messy bits that got you there. It can't just be, you know, the successes. It's the failure that comes with that. And it can't just be the like the culture that's it's the subcultures that exist within um you know that can be easily written off as like uh it doesn't matter but all of those things are just as important and as well as within ourselves you see this is why you have this podcast exactly and so the that whole thing about we don't know you know a lot of about a lot of what i show in lady adhd is that look, there's all these hidden patterns and connections. I don't see all of them at all, you know, but every, you know, people are capable of seeing things that you don't see. And the idea of embracing the messy bits is, first of all, a lot of times that's the fun part. But, you know, it's okay to just have fun, too, with nothing great coming out of everything all the goddamn time. But um, but knowing that, you know, I always say to people when we're in some kind of, you know, creative, you know, spitballing situation or we're coming up, I'm like, look, I'm going to have 10 hundred ideas. Like some people will call that a thousand. I'm going to have a thousand ideas. (laughs) And they're, they're, you know, they're not all keepers. Like, but I don't stop myself anymore from spitting them out because what it's going to really do is keep the good, weird one from coming out. We got to get the bad stuff or the silly stuff out of the way so we so we can come up with the gem and you're not going to know what the gem is right away necessarily. And just knowing that all of these, these fun ideas, all these things, all these, um, when I follow stories in this show of, of people or, or franchises like Schoolhouse Rock or the first guy who ever produced a Super Bowl halftime show, you can't, you don't know from the beginning. You don't have to, so much of the time I would get frustrated because I would want to try something 
not necessarily in comedy. I mean, earlier in life. And people are like, I don't think that's going to work out. Or I don't think that's going to, you know, here's a reason I think that's a bad idea. And it's like, who cares? So then it fails. Then fine. I mean, then let's then who cares? Let's have a good time at this thing that's going to fail. But when you hinder everything before it gets going, and this is a very big notion in improv, when you hinder every idea before it can even get out of everyone, anyone's brain or out of their mouth or created from their hands, you're just, you're nip, you're killing everything great before it's even gotten a chance to be born for us to see if it's great. You've never given anything a chance. If something's not perfect, I mean, I got this message so much growing up. If it's not perfect the first time you try it or the first shot you take at it, quit. It's not good. It's not your it's thing. It's not your and thing. It's not your what thing. What a terrible yeah. freaking lesson that is for all of us, <laughs> especially women, but everybody. I mean, that is, and it's just such bullshit. And even though yeah. I am on Instagram, I would like everyone to follow me on TikTok and Instagram, Postman Comedy, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what don't, think that the thing, the person you see with uh, 10 million followers is that happened the first day they ever did anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's just let's let's give everybody a chance to quote unquote fail. You will be surprised at what great things come from that. And just to free people, it just makes me so frustrated all the times, all the wasted time in my life where I thought if I wasn't perfect at something from the first effort that I was going to have to quit or I needed to avoid it. And so it, I wasted so many years not doing the stuff I love, not doing the stuff I think I was meant to do because of that. And I don't want anyone to think that they have to know from the get go of doing their weird little thing how it becomes leads to something great or that it even has to lead to anything great. So you want that cure for cancer, you know, you you want that great new work of artistry. Well, then you better let people go out and do their little silly stuff and and also not stop yourself from, quote unquote, failing every success. So many incarnations of that show before it even got to the stage. And I have rewritten it a million times, I feel like, since the very first time I performed it on stage. So it's just. Oh, God, please don't tell yourself that you have to be perfect or it has to be you have to be great at something before you even take the tiniest baby step to doing it. That is holding us all back. You're not giving us or that a there's society. a time stamp. Yeah. Yes. Or that there's a time. Oh, stamp yeah. I was you, 43 when I started past... stand up. I am, as I say in the show, let me tell you how popular it made me to be a, a, a you know, a recently bankrupt, twice married, you know, 43 year old woman showing up to comedy open mics with a flip chart. You know, (laughs) the other comics wouldn't talk to me because it seemed like a weird mashup between a 1940s ventriloquist act and a friend of their moms. You know, and that and that would have stopped me when I was 30, but it didn't stop me when I was 40 or ish, 42, 43. In fact, just looking at the date, my ninth anniversary of stand up was two days ago, as it turns out. That's amazing. So. That's amazing. It makes me think of my when my I don't know. Uh, Tom Robbins has wrote my favorite book. And one of the like final lines in it is it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Right. <laughs> I've and heard that I line. just fucking love that. So yes, I am much. having my happy childhood. But while but it makes me a better adult. Yeah. Let me ask you, Candace. OK, Blair, what do you, what do you want to do that you, you haven't let yourself really try? Oh, God. <laughs> Isn't that the million dollars? It can be question. little. It doesn't have to be a big deal thing. Did you make that flower wall? That's nice. I did. I made that. You've got I a, made that, so I've checked that off yeah, the list. Interior design, you know. 
Oh gosh, no, that's my, that's actually my nightmare. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't know. I think I really, um, I enjoy some version of writing. I don't know what that is. I don't right. know what that means. I don't know what it will become. Right. I know that, uh, but that is, that's been my weird thing. I, ever since I was, um, uh, 18 in LA, I've just signed up for like random writing oh, courses. Great. At least every couple of years, I like sign myself up for a writing course, but I don't know what it means. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to know. And I, it, and it doesn't have to, but, but it's also, it's being aware enough if, if this is something that's, it's, it's like starting to what, nag at you a little that, bit it, when it starts to nag at you a little mm -hmm. bit. Yes. Um, well, Blair, now I'm just going to, um, so it doesn't keep nagging at me. And then I get uncomfortable saying the things that like I, the goals that I'm too scared to admit that maybe I want for myself, I'm going to deflect <laughs> and, um, which is something I'm really good at. Um, but I, I love a cool down at the end of every episode. And I like to ask my guests just five last little things, which I actually funny enough picked up from a writing workshop oh, that there I did. You go. Um, it's like five things and it's, oh, it's based off of like the hand. It's like thumbs up, something you like, your pointer oh. finger, something, you know, middle finger, something you hate, <laughs> ring finger, something you love and your pinky is like something quirky. Okay. Um, so, but I like to ask every guest these questions because that, uh, icebreaker is always kind of stuck with me, but Blair, what is something that you like? Just like? Just like. It can be anything besides Diet Coke. We, no, we no. I mean, that's that. love. That's something beyond like. That's like ice cream is beyond <laughs> and we'll, like. And we'll get to love. Um, uh -huh. What do I like? I love walking really long distances, especially if I have a great audiobook or podcast to listen to. Like with no, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday with no deadline to be anywhere in front of me. I love walking like. Oh, you're in New York. No, I'm in. Actually, I'm in Baltimore. Oh, you're in Baltimore. Yes. So will you go? Is this like I just you, like, moved go out? here six months ago from D.C. Long story. But um, the uh, I, I live very near the Inner Harbor, like a couple of few blocks. So I will walk all the way around the harbor and all like all the way back. Um, and I love letting my it kind of I'm both getting input from something interesting, like the audiobook, mm -hmm. But I'm also it lets my brain kind of play mm -hmm. as it as it listens. So it's. I like that. So while you're doing these walks, what, what is your feeling when someone's walking then the other way? Are you like in your own zone? Do you feel like you have to make oh, eye I'm contact in, with every yeah. single person? I have, I've been told that I have the opposite of resting bitch face. That Like I am, apparently I, this probably comes from how we we're socially programmed as, <laughs> as a child, but like I seem to always be like smiley and my eyes are wide open. Um, and so I get asked for like, what time is it? Can you take our picture by the, <laughs> by the, by the water in front of the, you know, in Fells Point a lot. I get that a lot. Yep. Same. Um, that's very funny. Okay. Something that you uh, know. I'm going to tell you something that I've never said out loud to someone other than my husband and one or two comedy friends. Oh my goodness. This is not breaking it's, news. It's going to seem really, I've built it up. It's going to be, it's not that big. It's a big deal to me. It's terrifying for me to okay. say, so I'm going to say it. Okay. So I put you on the spot. I'm oh my say goodness. Okay. I wrote this show. I've never written a show. There's a lot of dramatic parts, Ted talky kind of parts that aren't comedy. There's, it's great. I know this show is great. It may not go anywhere, like anywhere big, like what a special. I know I, I'll put it a different way. I know I did a great job. And that is really, I'm like, my hands are sweating right now. It's really scary to say that to other people because people can go and we watch it or watch pieces of it or see other things I've done and 
you know how the internet is and like tell me all the reasons why it's not great or whatever uh like it, with way too much intensity and i but it's it's very embarrassing it's, it's embarrassing it's not, for me though. to That's say not that embarrassing. I, I know it's i know i won't even say it's great i'm gonna say i did a great job no that you can say I'm it's great say. i and, and i know and but I, it's i can't it's now we've jinxed it <laughs> no, that's how I'm like when you're like, well, what do you want? What are they? And I'm like, I can't, if I say it, then it's, you know, I'm always a, until the ink I'm is I'm saying dry. it out loud because it's but scary I and that. I don't say it out loud. And I, even when people tell me after a show, it was, and this sounds very self-serving, like, because people will listen to this podcast and be like, well, I guess it's great. No, I'm saying it out loud because it's terrifying for me, even if someone says something nice to me after a show, mm -hmm. the way you don't want, the way you want to make the show and then hide. I love performing the show and the energy. And then I would like to um, go into the, you know, backstage and like not have to, it's not the, it's not the feedback that's like how to improve it. It's the compliments are just for some reason, very embarrassing. And it's very hard for me to handle. Yep. So I have a big Im imposter syndrome or whatever it is. But what I know, the short answer is what I know is that I did a great job creating and improving this thing that I made. And, and wherever it goes, is there an element matter. of, and also that you know that you made the show that you wanted to make? In the end, yes. Yeah. And I wasn't sure what I wanted it to be at the beginning. But yes. you had to start somewhere. I made the show I wanted to make and I did a good job. And you job. know you did a good job. I did a great job. You did a fucking great job. I, I did a fucking great job, Candace. <laughs> <laughs> you see why I like this exercise? Yes, yeah, this is great. This could be okay, podcast. Now... Well, I, every one of my answers is 70 minutes long, so I, this could be the whole podcast. No. <laughs> I love it. Okay, now something you hate. Oh, I hate being told no. I hate being told you can't. And I also love it because it's very motivating. But I hate that just, that just, let's just shut it down. Let's just not, let's just smother it before it ever has a chance to breathe. Let's just, no. Just, no, you're not allowed. No. Nope. Something that you love. I, something I love. And not family. We I, we all love, you know, family. And cats. And My cats. Cat. We love cats. And ice cream. We love ice cream. Something that I love. Um, I love finding something new that teaches me about something I never knew existed. So like there's, if there was a, like a, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. The, um, oh, I just had it. He did a walk in the woods and he did, um, he has all these books and they're about like the, the entire history of the home. And it's like you learn like, and that's why they're called closets, you know, or whatever it might be. <laughs> that kind of thing. I love that. I love finding things that teach me about how this little germ. There's a book about salt, the history of salt. <laughs> it's fascinating. It teaches you where the phrase red herring came from and a million billion other things. And learning about how this little thing is why all this other stuff geopolitical stuff, natural history stuff, just how we live our lives stuff is the way it is. I love that. Now I want to find this book about salt because I'm just like, I didn't it's, even think about it. I know it doesn't that. sound great. No. I'm telling you, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm right there. I'm... <laughs> it's like a thousand pages long. I recommend getting the audiobook. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. And then one quirky little fact about you. 
I feel like I should tell you something that's not especially quirky because I come off as like, I'm quirky is who I am. That I am, I want to tell you a way in which I'm really boring. Um, I love being in bed with my cats. If my husband's there, that's great too, <laughs> but it's not required. <laughs> I love if like, it, sometimes it takes me like to throw my back out for this to happen. But like it's Saturday or Sunday, I'm with my cats and I am watching like Family Guy just for four hours while I text with a friend on the phone. This is not quirky. I'm just saying like I, as much as I, I love just watching all of something like, all, you know, if it's binge watching something or just watching, you know, like the family guys I've seen a hundred times and just by myself laughing at the parts that I think are funny, that not everyone, they're not the big joke in the show. <laughs> That's what I like to do. Uh, well, I like hanging out with you on this podcast. Candace, so, anytime. Blair, thank you. <laughs> Thank I'm sorry you. I did all the talking. <laughs> well, that's, you know, this is my version of <laughs> deflecting so that I don't have to. This is my whole roundabout. I think the next podcast episode, Candice, you should start talking every day. You talk about something you did last week that you were a little <laughs> bit afraid to do and how you did it. Um, there you go. And that's why I write it all in essay form so I can workshop it before I put it on the <laughs> mic because of my own idiosyncrasies. But this is so much fun. I so much appreciate you having me. I had a great time and I hope. You know, I hope something useful came out of it for somebody who needs something useful. Absolutely. Today. Absolutely. Even for me, there were useful things. So truly, selfishly, <laughs> I feel great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a Super Boom podcast hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond Imprint Productions. Post-production sound by Chris Henry and advertisement partnerships with ACAST. <laughs>